Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Small Party Do? We're being very generous to you again this week. We've got yet another special guest, believe it or not. Uh, all the way from down the road from where I live, we've got <laughs> Mike Mason, the line developer for Call of Cthulhu with Kassim. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, guys. I'm good. Good to be here. He's still living in Gotham with Batman. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Well, it's, it's, if you're local, you pronounce it Gotham, but it is it is where Gotham of Batman got its name from. All right, cool. Interesting fact. It's good seeing buses going past with Batman adverts and Gotham written on the bus. That always amuses me. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, all the way down south, we've also got Baz. How are you doing, Baz? I'm from Essex. We don't have buses. We have golden limousines of fire. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Trump lives there. Yeah, a little bit, mate. Yeah, really good. Really good, thanks. Hello, Mike. You all right, buddy? I'm good, mate. Um, yeah, good to uh, good to be talking. Yeah. Yeah, 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 cool. So I guess one of the first times... Well, when was the first time I met Mike? It was going to be one of two things, so we can talk about one then the other. But it was either a Games Workshop-related thing, or it's possibly uh, a role-playing I mentioned when you were in Cult of Keepers, uh, a cadre of people were in Cthulhu games. Can you remember which one it was? I... I think it was probably Call of Keepers, something like um, Convulsion or something like that, or Continuum or Gen Con even. I don't know, Gen Con UK. I, I I'm not sure. Yeah, one of those, I think. You and, the, the, you, you, and, you and the Smart Party, or Mob, as we used to call them. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a better website to get. I should have thought about that. Um, so, what, what, where did the Cult of Keepers come from, Mike? Because obviously now you're working for Chaosium, but back then you were just a fan, I guess, of Cthulhu type games. So, how did that all come about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I was uh, just a uh, a regular regular player, as it were, back in the day. Um, well, it stemmed from I think going to UK Gen Con at um, places like Loughborough University when when it used to be on. Um, and the only organized kind of play going on there was um, done by the, what was called the RPGA. That was mainly kind of D&D games, but they did run other systems. Um, and uh, there was an organization, a kind of uh, another organization called Eurolog, who kind of ran their own kind of convention within the convention. And... Yeah. Uh, so I kind of, I, well, I tried playing in some RPG games. I tried, was going to try and run some games for RPG, but it was a lot of, a lot of hassle, if I seem to remember correctly. <laughs> and uh, I think I had, a, I might have had a few issues with the way that the kind of the games were administrated, as in, it seemed to be a lot of people standing around and then somebody would shout at them and then shout at them some more. And then they'd look a bit amused. And finally, you might find a game where the GM had just been given the scenario, done no prep, didn't know what was going on, and you had to just sort of wing it. That was my experience. And obviously, that wasn't the case for every game, but but I wasn't particularly impressed, I think, at the time. Um, so I ran a few kind of games off my own back for Eurolog. And then, okay, kind of at that time, I kind of met a few other people that kind of barely, you know, ran Call of Cthulhu games, you know, like myself. And I sort of thought, well, why don't we just sort of get together and share scenarios and, you know, try and put things on. And around that time, I kind of came up with the idea of running um, a kind of Call of Cthulhu tournament in the UK called the UK Nationals, I think, to try and differentiate it from the um, Cthulhu Masters in, in America. And I'd, right, yeah. I'd been talking to Chaosium about that, and they were kind of happy for me to just go and do something, really. So I did, and um, so I kind of formed this loose group of keepers 
uh, called the Cult of Keepers. And the idea would be every year we'd all write a new scenario, we'd share them between us, and then we'd just say, if one of us was going to a show, we'd say, I'm going to this show, I'm going to run some games, anyone else come in? And then, you know, invariably, you know, there'd be another sort of two or three or four people from the group turn up, and then that would allow us to either run some, you know, just run some general one-session games or, you know, run some small tournaments, that kind of thing, just to kind of um, get more Cthulhu games going, really, at cons. Because uh, there, always, there was always some going on, but we always wanted more because we liked the game and wanted to put more on. And there was always a demand for it. Um, and but not always the demand wasn't always catered for so, so that's, that's kind of how it started and um, and I think you know we we ran for a few years and you know ran various sort of different uh, things like uh, you know, one shots tournaments ran you know Gatsby in the Great Race that kind of multi session one which I think you guys played in the first time we ran that um, yeah yeah and, and you know it was just basically a desire to you know meet the demand for people wanting to play Cthulhu and um, and wanting to run it at the same time. No, good stuff. I think that probably the difference with like our mob, one of a better uh, name, uh, was probably that we all like playing different games. So I suppose in, in that aspect, you all like the same sort of thing. So it made it a bit easier for you to all just run the same stuff and sort of better scenarios around. Whereas Baz trying to give me a superheroes game and me trying to give me a dark horror game to Baz isn't really going to work quite as well. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I remember that yeah. Keeper stuff. I remember speaking of the first time we met. I, I don't think it was the first time, but one of the very first times Mike and I met, I never saw him because I was blindfolded and I'm pretty sure he was running an ice cube around the back of my neck. So Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely probably true, Baz, yeah. I think it is, which was indicative of the kind of style of gaming that the 90s embody, and I'm all for it. Health and safety rules are different back then, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They were. That, that was the game where um, Scott Dorwood or somebody, when we blindfolded him and were walking in between different rooms for the game, afterwards said he, he actually thought we were going to throw him down the stairs at one point. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> and I bet there was just a little bit of a twinge of sadness that you hadn't thought of yourselves. <laughs> if you'd known you could have got away with it. Well, yeah, indeed. Oh dear. <laughs> so it's it's not just Cthulhu stuff though, is it? So just to drag you off that for a little second, but yeah. you also um was it develops the um the forty K role playing game? Yeah. The Dark yeah. Heresy and all that. So, yeah, when I when I was um working at Games Workshop I um the last role I had there was uh, managing Black Industries, which was the kind of the gaming imprint of Black Library. So that was looking after their board games like Talisman and um and Rough Rock Fantasy Roleplay. But the main reason why I was brought in was to basically um, get Warmer 40k, um, the role-playing game Dark Heresy, um, finished and out through the door on time because um, it had been in development some time and gone through a few hiccups and uh, and basically um, <laughs> it just needed somebody who could actually finish the book and, and actually deliver it. So uh, that was my kind of key task. Um, so, yeah, so um, so I worked on the, the rule book and then the um, the first few first few books that came out for that system before um, GW effectively you know sold the uh, the license uh, or licensed the uh, the right to uh, the board games and role playing games to um, fantasy flight games. 
So it seems, I mean, I, I appreciate it might be under some kind of non-disclosure or something else, but it seemed a bit of a shame because you've you got that game out. It's sort of like the first book sold out in about 10 minutes flat. And it seems that GB would can print them fast enough for people to buy them. So it seemed just an odd decision that they eventually just sort of, well, very quickly decide they weren't going to do it anymore. Is it just because it's not their forte, they didn't have the writers, or had it been a bit of a ball leg to get it out the door in the first place and they decided they'd had enough of that kind of stuff? I don't think it was any of those considerations. I think it came squarely down to, uh, you know, uh, the view in the kind of higher echelons of GW that, um, that what their primary business was was making toy soldiers. Um, mm. and things that would support Toy Soldiers. And, of course, role-playing games are, are obviously famous for... You can use Toy Soldiers, but you don't use as many as you do playing Warhammer, do you? Um, oh, really? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it was basically considered something that wasn't a core product. Um, and um, and so at that time... And, uh, you know, anyone who's studied the history of Games Workshop will note that it's very cyclic and that from time to time there is this kind of there is this refocusing on what they consider is their core product, which is tends mm. to be toy soldiers. Um, yeah. And, um, and so once uh, Dark Heresy had come out and it'd been out a, uh, uh, you know, a few months, really, that was about it. Um, another refocus happened. And uh, one of the kind of casualties of that was the whole black industries division um, amongst others at the time. Um, and it was decided that, you know, yeah, it's a great guy. Well, well the reason they could license it and uh, and and obviously do it in a profitable manner was that we, you know we had launched it well and uh, it had, you know gone down very well and as you said it sold through the first print run i think the first print run we did was uh, 30,000 copies um and it sold through those um and the limited edition sold out in 2 minutes i think on the uh, internet so I think because we created a buzz, it sold well. There was a there was definitely demand for it. You know, obviously the, it was attractive to somebody like FFG to pick up, and um, and obviously GD could command a reasonable, you know, royalty request for it. I guess so. Uh, all the all the stars aligned, not so much in my <laughs> favour, but obviously yeah, everyone else's. But uh, such is life. Yeah, I think uh, you'll agree with that as well, Baz, won't you? That quite often with GW, they have, they have good ideas. Somebody thinks we'll, we'll branch out a little bit, but within a very short space of time, someone's decided that, no, I make toy soldiers, and that's what we do. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and whatever it was they were doing stops very suddenly. Well, yeah, they, the yeah, they, they do indeed do this cyclic thing that that, that Mike was, was talking about there, and I, I think me and Mike were both the victim of that kind of cyclic <laughs> thinking at the end of it. And the weird thing is, whenever they kind of refocus on stuff they focus on they go back to the same point which is we make toy soldiers like i know who told you you didn't i mean <laughs> really this is <laughs> whenever they try something different it's like, it's almost like um like a child reaching out towards a flame and they get slightly burned and then they snatch their hands back and go no no, no it's toy soldiers nothing else nothing else which to be fair they do remarkably well you know one of the best toy soldiers companies in the world and well when i was there um and we parted company i think before before Black Library became a gaming division, so Black Library started off as well as a, as a fiction division, really, yeah. and and that went back to the very early roots of, of Brian Ansell's um, Citadel Miniatures stuff, really, with some of the really early fiction from Kim New Newman and those kind of things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, even Black Library, over the course of its tenure, became about three or four different things. So that's, that's Games Workshop for you. It, it really doesn't sit still, despite being extremely conservative with a small C as a business really they, they they do change and flux quite a lot it's quite hard to 
it's quite hard to love everything they do and equally it's quite hard to find to hate everything they do because they they just change so regularly yeah i mean the other casualty at the time of uh black industries was um solaris books which is it was a uh black libraries um sci-fi horror fiction imprint where it was basically they were doing books that were had nothing to do with the the gw warhammer ip they were just mm. straight you know sci-fi or horror books and um and we're doing pretty well and started to actually get some really good reviews and some original titles out but again it was just decided that uh that you know clearly didn't uh, mesh with the core product and uh and that was um sold or i'm not sure if it was sold or licensed out to rebellion who still mm. still who i think now run it as i don't know if they run it as solaris or abaddon books or something like that these days yeah mm. I mean, half the games developers were writing the novels in their lunch breaks and weekends and stuff. Gave Gav Thorpe something to do, yeah. it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so do, do you think there's much of um, a little bit of a cottage industry with British game then? Sort of, uh, like you, you've got a, a role now, Casting, which is obviously an American company, but uh, we all get a bit, certainly me and Baz and, and you there, we sort of get a bit misty-eyed talking about the good old days in Games Workshop. There's actually quite a few names from that sort of period that have done their own little things, be it war games or other things, like getting to novels or whatever else. Do you think there's still that bit of creativity that's pushing through in British roots, or is it um, is it more just kind of like everybody's doing OSR of their own things like worldwide now? But do you think we've got that, that homegrown kind of talent still budding through? I think, I think, there's, I think that's kind of there's two strands to that, which you've kind of semi-answered. I think there is the the whole. I think yes, it's a plain answer, but I think it divides into two things. I think there's a whole kind of OSR strand thing, which I think you know, back in the day before the world of the internet, I think that was the stuff people were doing, um, and because there wasn't a facility to share it, it was what they did with. It was basically homebrews they did with their groups, um, and maybe if they went to a convention, they'd run it for somebody else, and somebody might say, "Well, that was really cool." Can I get a copy of that? And they'd photocopy it and give it to them. And that's as far as it went. And now what, you know, we would have called homebrews back in the day is now called the OSR revolution or whatever it is. It just seems to me the same thing, except it's got a wider, you know, a wider distribution and, and there's facilities on the internet now for you to actually sell it and make money off it rather than just uh, give it away free like in the old days. Um and I think that, you know, I think obviously game design is part of that, but it's very much tweaking somebody else's game design. Um, and so, you know, I think there's varying levels of what you might term game design in OSR. There is obviously some, but, you know, let's face it, it's D&D that you're tweaking. Um, whereas, you know, you have uh, others are actually coming up with, you know, you know, original content, I guess, or, or, or you know, something different. Um, and I think there is, a, you know, I think there is, you know, if you, if you can put them back together, having divided them in half now, uh, putting back together, I think, <laughs> I think in, in certainly in the UK, there's, um, it's, it continues as it ever did. I think there's a, you know, burgeoning creativity and people coming through. I mean, you know, people we know, I mean, you know, um, uh, Andy Kenrick, uh, with Steam Powered Publishing over the years has put out his own, uh, own versions new games uh dead of night you know very successful very you know very well respected um and uh and there are others you know graham walmsley you know has uh gone his own way with certain things and uh has you know built up a good reputation um and you know and that's nuts before we talk about people who are 
um, not, you know, were just freelancing and just actually, you know, either in their own time or, or somehow managed to go full time and uh, writing for big studios or small publishers or doing their own thing. Um, I think that's still all, all out there and really and still continues to develop. And uh, it's, you know, the lifeblood of uh, kind of creativity in the industry, really. So uh, I don't think it's diminished in any way. I think all the internet's done is made it far more accessible in that in that sense. Yeah, no, fair point. So you mentioned um, Graham Worms like that, who I, I know from doing Cthulhu Dark. You ran a bit of that, Milton Keynes. Uh, and we had Paul Bardowski on last week. He was talking about his uh, particular thing as well. He's doing a, a hack based on an OSR type thing. Um, what do you think to those sort of like games? I mean, one of my complaints previously on the podcast about sort of Cthulhu's been not Call of Cthulhu as a game per se, it's like how some of it's run at conventions. For example, a lot of people like to just play quite fast and loose with the rules and just make stuff up. So I think they probably give some kind of credence to that style of play. So how do you think they fit into the landscape? Because as, as you say, if you put Cthulhu up at a convention, you, just, you can't get enough people signing up for it, really. Or you can't get enough refs for the people signing up for it, rather. Yeah, I mean, um, it really comes down to what you're looking for. I mean, um, the... There is a definite, I mean, you know, Cthulhu is kind of, it's not, you know, it's not mainstream in that sense, but it's certainly, you know, m- a much wider appreciation or uh, knowledge about, you know, um, you know, Lovecraftian horror in that sense or weird fiction uh, in gaming, um, which has always been there, to be honest. It's always been there, but entirely or hidden away in pockets. It's just kind of grown, you know, kind of organically, particularly obviously spurring, spurred with Call of Cthulhu particularly. But um, you see its tentacles across many game systems and many settings and, you know, you can't move for tentacles sometimes. Um, so I think, uh, I think, um, I think you know, these kind of, uh, well, you know, you look at Kickstarter and, you know, it's clearly the, the accepted wisdom is if you've got a, you know, a board game or, or, or some sort of, yeah, some sort of role-playing game. Um, if you add the word Cthulhu to it, you might sell a few more copies. Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that's done for very good reasons. As in, it's you know, it is actually they have designed a game that is inherently about you know the Cthulhu mythos in some sense or shape of that. And so, you know, quite rightly, it justifies having Cthulhu on the title. Sometimes it seems to have been slapped on there as a last afterthought to try and get a bit more dosh. You know, but you know, swings and roundabouts, isn't it? But um, um, but certainly, um, you know, I think if you like, you know, the kind of mechanics of, you know, if you're in the OSR crowd, then I can see, you know, why you would be interested in playing something like Cthulhu Hack, that kind of thing. Um, likewise, if you're, you know, kind of more coming from the maybe the what I don't know what it's termed now, but what used to be called the indie scene, um, Cthulhu Dark might appeal. Um, and vice versa and yeah you know which is all all fair and good i mean more people playing kind of cthulhu stuff is great um and ultimately the end of the day you know um it encourages people to look more into that kind of stuff they enjoy it so eventually they either come to call of cthulhu or they play it as a slight change of pace from call of cthulhu at times that kind of thing it all kind of works together really so i mean you know it's all all to the good um, I don't, you know, I I think ultimately I don't think those games necessarily introduce many new people to the hobby. I think they tend to be geared to existing gamers. Certainly, seem to be written for existing gamers. There's not a lot of 
explanatory material in those games because they're quite small. They haven't really got the room for it. Um, whereas, you know, traditionally and, and still seen to this day, Call of Cthulhu, like D&D, is one of a few um, role-playing games. It is a gateway game for new people who've never role-played before. You know, I get emails, I see on forums all the time, people who have um, have said, I've never role-played before, but I've heard about this Cthulhu, I'm going to give it a go. Um, just like you see people saying with D&D. Um, so it is very clearly one of those kind of um, systems. So, um, you know, so getting, you know, enabling people to get into role playing through Call of Cthulhu is, is you know, is a real, is a real good thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's quite funny. It's one of those old ones where sometimes you see people who've uh, come back to gaming after many years away, where our sort of age may be a bit younger, perhaps. And you ask them, oh, what, what sort of games are you into? Then what did you play? So like, oh, I play all the games. I play D&D, Cthulhu, and Traveller. And in their minds, they're like the only three games that exist in the world. So you're kind of like, sure. <laughs> I find it quite funny. Aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> On the wrong podcast. <laughs> but it, it it is one of those mainstays from, you know, 1970, 80, whatever it is, that seems to still hang around no matter how long. Um but I think one of the things you've done quite recently is, um, with the, the new edition anyway, is bring out the quick start, which makes yeah. things a little bit easier as well to get your head around. Well, that, yeah, I, I mean, think... that, that is specifically written for new people, whether it, whether it's new to role playing or, you know, just new to the game, uh, which is the, you know, the Call of Cthulhu quick start rules, which is a small, I can't remember how big it is, like 26 pages, 24 pages, um, of which. 48. 48, okay, 48 pages. Yeah. I'm thinking of the rules. Half of it, half of it is the rules. Yes. Half of it is yeah, a scenario. Yeah. Um, mm. So, um, so it's not, you know, it's not 48 pages of rules. It's about, you know, 20 pages of rules or so. Um, and that basically is the kind of the the basic cut down rules, you know, basic explanations, and, and enough, you know, that you can play the game. You can certainly play through this, the start of scenario, which is the haunting, the kind of classic one that's been in most Call of Cthulhu rule books over the years, um, and uh, allows people to get into it. And what I did was to uh, commission a, a solo play scenario called Alone Against the Dark, which um, is designed, again, it's a small, you know, just yourself. It's a bit, it's like a fighting fantasy, choose your own adventure book, uh, that actually as you play through it, it actually, um, you use that alongside the quick start rules. It actually gets you to roll up a character as you go through it. It teaches you the rules. You don't have to read the quick start before you start playing it. You just read it and it will refer you to the quick start at a different point saying just read this paragraph now now we're going to do this thing now we're going to you know make a combat role or a skill role and this is how you do it uh and but you know under the um the aegis of a of an actual you know uh plot and a, a narrative and adventure um and so you can get both of those as pdfs for free on the cares and website um you can also get print versions uh where we you know we charge the uh the cover cost for but um but effectively, you want to just try something no risk. Then, you know, those are those are there exactly for that. And is that one of the things I was asking about? Actually, is that part of a line developer's role? Because the, the only other line developer I was aware of was sort of Justin Achille, who did uh, the World of Darkness type stuff. But a few games after that started mentioning line developer. But I've never been entirely clear on what that actually involves. Have you kind of got carte blanche to do whatever you see fit, as long as? Uh, the books keep going out the door or what? what how, how does a line developer work? Um, and how do you get to be one? <laughs> yeah, well, technically, I'm, technically I'm, I'm, I'm a line editor, but it's the same thing as a line, edit, line, uh, a line manager in that respect. Um, basically, um, I, you know, I manage and look after that 
the the, the Call of Cthulhu game line. Um, so what that actually means in practice is um, I I consider what what books need to come out for the line, um, and then produce them to to actual uh, to actual release. Um, part of that process is either I'm I'm coming up with like new books. I'm I've got authors I you know regularly work with who come up with new books, and then we may have people we've never heard of who submit an idea for a book that we just go that's really cool, um, and you're clearly capable of writing it. Um, so basically, I have to kind of juggle juggle the ideas and form them into uh, what I think are saleable products that kind of that sit well within not only the Call of Cthulhu line, but also within the, you know, the, the wider Kersian brand. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not an owner of Kersian, but, you know, there is an own management team. So, you know, I put my ideas forward and, you know, uh, hopefully they agree, you know, and uh, they will agree, <laughs> they'll agree, like, I mean, effectively, you know, the, the company's paying for my, for my toying around with the game. So um, they, um, you know, they have obviously a fairly, you know, good right to, uh, green light things or, or have the uh, comments but i mean most of the time it's a, you know it's an input it's just you have an idea and the team can, you know input ideas and basically like across all the games we do we all kind of like chip in ideas chip in suggestions and you kind of hone it into the kind of product you want it you know you want it to be um so that's kind of step one and then step two is actually either i'm identifying an author to write it or authors to write it or the authors come come with the idea, so they're they're immediately attached to it. Or it's something that I think actually I want to write myself. So I kind of you know basically find and allocate the resource to actually you know write the material. Then I kind of keep an eye on the time, and you know uh, you know if we're <laughs> kind of expecting the book to come in by October, then I'll try and you know keep tabs with the authoring, you know, ensure that they're. That everything that, that everything's okay there, and that they don't need any help, or they're not running into problems. And if they are, then you know, sit down with them and try and work through what the issues may be, and to, to overcome them, so that they that they can get on and you know, um, uh, and finish what the finish the project. So there's kind of a time management, project management angle to that. Um, and then once you have a text come in, then there's a whole, then it kind of goes into phase two, which is the kind of you know the the editing of the of the text, um, uh, making sure it you know conforms to kind of a house style, uh, that the you know the English and the grammar are all acceptable, and um, and basically at that point as well, looking at um, what the art needs are going to be, um, you know what sort of um, what art is needed, what art, what cartography needs are going to be, what you know how many maps do we need, what do the maps need to look like, what sort of style are they. You know, is it a, uh, a 1920s book, a modern day book, a, uh, a gaslight book, a dream man's book? And, and you know, and how, to, how should the art, you know, um, mesh with that? Um, and then, you know, work closely with people like uh, Nick Nicario, who uh, who does a lot of the actual um, end um, art commissioning uh, and also the layout of the book. Um, so, you know, we work very closely together, kind of tying our ideas together and, you know, supporting each other in that way. Um, and um, and so then, you know, then we've got to go and not, you know, we've got the writer all sorted, but we've got to go and commission somebody to do the maps, somebody to do the different art, somebody to do the cover art. You know, what what would work well as a cover? You know, find try and find the right artist to deliver that. And then once you put all that jigsaw, you got all the pieces. Then you know, 
you throw that uh, at, uh, as I say, somebody like Nick Macario, who will then, you know, do magic on on the computer and make it <laughs> and make it look fantastic, um, and then it comes back to me to kind of check it, and you know, I'm that's when I'm kind of reading the book again for the you know the umpteenth time, checking checking the proofing, uh, you know, checking the uh, the layout, uh, the you know, there's no errors or problems that have come up. Um, and um, effectively finalising the book, so it's in a in a at a point where it can actually you know be sent to a printer to uh, to you know to go on sale effectively. I mean, so yeah, that's a kind of nutshell of what I do. And then obviously all the other stuff on the side, which is you know dealing with um, unsolicited submissions, answering queries on the email on forums, you know, running games at conventions, signing books, all that kind of malarkey, you know. So. Uh, but that's that's the real <coughs> job is is basically identifying and producing books to market effectively. So you're like the Pharrell Williams of the role play world, is so <laughs> <laughs> if that happens. But I mean, that's no different from what anyone else who you know who you know produces role playing books does. You know, so everyone does the same thing. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! Mike, what do you do with them? How, how do you balance fan desires with the, the needs of KSE and as a business? And Would you still consider yourself like, you know, a number one Cthulhu fan? Are you able to have that sort of separation? Is Have you had to like change anything because of, I mean, it's a pretty vocal fan base that Cthulhu will have had. It's one of the, the oldest and biggest in the world, yeah. surely. I mean, that that's, as you say, you've got to answer emails and get out there onto social networks and stuff like that is... How big of a chunk of the job is that, and what effect does it have on the products that come out of the gate? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd be stupid not to keep an ear to the ground and sort of see how, see what you know, what fans of the game and long-term players of the game, as well as new players of the game, are asking mm. for. You know, what problems they're encountering, what they're finding, you know, what they think works really well, what scenarios particularly stand out, you know, that get good reviews or you not not just only get good reviews, but the ones you see that appear time and time again on forum posts, as in I'm running this or I'm having problems with this or this has gone really well or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it, it's you know, it's it's certainly a good sounding board to keep, you know, ear to the ground to sort of gauge how things are being received. Uh, obviously, you know, the the flip side to that is how well they're selling. You know, if certain books are going to do very well then clearly we're doing something right as well um so obviously that's i've got to take that into account but as you say it's, it's balanced by you know the fact i am you know i still remain a fan of call of cthulhu um and um you know what do i think is appropriate and right for the line temper that with the kind of you know the the you know the um the that community feeling uh equally tempered and and also um, energised by 
the needs of the company. You know, what 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 does the company need from the line at this point in time, or what is the company what is the company going to need from the line over the next 12, 24 months? Uh, you know, uh, which could be you know, not that it is, but it, you know, if it's like, oh, we only need one Cthulhu book from you in twelve months' time, then that gives me a great latitude to come up with some something. You know, spend a lot of time in detail, whereas opposed to we want a book a month. That's a very different work schedule and a very different proposition. So I've got to balance all those different needs together to to produce, um, you know, what are effectively, hopefully, attractive, saleable, and uh, well regarded in terms of the actual community uh, products. Um, so it is a balancing act. But I mean, I think you know it, you can't. You've got to kind of harmonise all those elements. You know, and ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, I've got to, I've got to kind of, it's got to sit well with me in terms of thinking, yeah, I think this is ultimately, yeah, I think this is the right call rather than, you know, because, you know, you don't, no one wants to work on things they don't have any faith in. So you've got to have some sort of faith in because you, you know, you and the company are going to devote X amount of resources to it. So there's got to be a level of faith that you think it's not only the right thing, but it's a cool and exciting thing too. So um, one of the other things you've got going on, you did, you did call uh, Cult of Keepers, as we mentioned a while back, but it seems that Kirsten was going down a bit of a, an organised player kind of route at the minute as well. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, um, as, as you said, I mean, Call of Cthulhu particularly, I mean, and RuneQuest back in the day and, and has continued to be, even, even through its different iterations, have, um, have always been, you know, well featured at uh, conventions and you know certainly more you know, certain conventions very strongly and, and you know, smattering at other conventions um so there's always been a kind of a popular desire to have it running at shows um and so what we wanted to do was to basically kind of um harness that fan desire and also reward and support that desire for running games because obviously at the end of the day being a games company the more you can have your game running at shows the more people are introduced to it and, um, and you know, hopefully uh, enjoy it. So um, what we did was set up uh, a thing called the um, the Cult of Chaos. <laughs> See where I got the idea where it comes from. Um, <laughs> Always recycling old ideas. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So you got the, the uh, which is basically our kind of volunteer um, GM program. So, um, and you can go to the Chaos website. There's, uh, there's a couple of pages of info about it. You can actually sign up on the on the web page, uh, which is obviously all free. Uh, but basically, you register that you want to be a member. Uh, there's a few kind of like uh, guidelines and you know rules, just so you know you're not going to do stupid things. And um, and uh, and then basically that grants you kind of entry into the inner sanctum of the the cult of chaos, um, which is basically a couple of things. One is um, Members of the Cult of Chaos, we you know we make um, scenarios available to them. You know each year we we produce a few scenarios that are specifically written for conventions or demo games, that kind of thing. Uh, so we make those available to the Cult of Chaos, so they can you know they've got something to play. Obviously, equally they all write you know most of them write their own stuff as well. But uh, you know if they need something offhand or they want to use uh, use something redone, then um, that's available to them. And um, and we have a kind of a, a reward system. So um, if they send, you know, they let us know they're going to go and do something and then they go and do it. And then they put a little report through about, you know, who turned up, what, how, how did it go? 
where, you know, which store they did it in or library or whether they did it online or whatever, then we will, um, you know, we'll credit them um, uh, in the, on, you know, the Caresum web store so they can build up credits, uh, which effectively, you know, equates to um, getting discounts or money off of products that they uh, they they may want to purchase off uh, Caresium. Um so you know they're kind of a, a bit of a thank you and an incentive there as well, and that's kind of like if you call you know like call it the kind of the step one, um, and that's you know that's very much a kind of you know go and go and run go and run games and have a great time guys you know that that's really what it's about, um, and then um, we kind of introduced this kind of organised play concept. So um, if you remember the Cause of Chaos, then um, last year what we did, we put out a, a sequential monthly series of Call of Cthulhu scenarios that actually were part of a campaign. We actually built a campaign um, called A Time for Harvest. And um, so that was, again, freely available to anyone in the Cult of Chaos. And so basically the idea was that, you know, you would with, you know, you start a group maybe in a store or an online group or uh, even do it a series of conventions potentially, but the the idea is that you know you'd pick a core core group of people that hopefully wouldn't change too much between each session, because the nature of you know the cam the campaign is that you kind of need to kind of follow it all the way through, um, and just again encourage people to kind of experience what because a lot of the time people's experience of Call of Cthulhu at conventions are one shots, which Cthulhu works very very well for, um, but equally Cthulhu works well. For campaign games as well which are you know quite a different kind of style of playing and so we wanted to kind of encourage that kind of you know if you never played a call of Cthulhu campaign here's a really easy way to do it and um so we ran that over about six or seven months last year um and uh with you know um hundreds of groups around the world uh you know running it um and they all ran it at their own pace you know some groups kind of you know ran you know one to four sessions a month each month going through the snows as they came out and finished more or less around about the time we finished it you know with the last episode and other groups are still playing it <laughs> so you know <laughs> and, so and, that, and that's cool yeah because ultimately you know we just give people the resource and the tools to have a good time really that's what it's about um and um so organized play is a kind of a developing thing you know that was the first time we'd done anything with it it had you know it worked very well for some groups other groups it didn't work so well at who had more who didn't really have a a constant group of players who might actually have a completely different group of players each month so playing that kind of narrative-led campaign is quite difficult for those kind of guys uh, so um one of the things uh we're looking to do at the next time we you know we do uh, an organized play kind of campaign in inverted commas for call of cthulhu uh, which, you know, all being well, you know, later this year, maybe. Um, we're looking at more episodic, you know, one-shot style scenarios that actually that do link together. So if you do you do miss one, it doesn't matter. You can pick up the story, but, but if you did play any of the ones, you know, you'd probably get a little bit more of the flavour of it all, but it's not essential. Um, so that just hopefully caters to that kind of, you know, game store style, you know, sessions um, a little bit more. Uh, and likewise, you know, obviously, we've kind of led the way with Call of Cthulhu with organised play, but obviously with RuneQuest coming out, you know, there's there's going to be a, a clear market of people and a fan base that are going to want to do, you know, uh, RuneQuest games. So, you know, we'll be looking at how how we can, you know, uh, encourage the Call of Chaos and organised play through them 
to obviously you know, demo RuneQuest and get that out. Because obviously, um, it being a new version, you know, there should be some excitement and people wanting to give it a try, see whether it's the you know the flavour for them. Then, um, then hopefully that will you know help to do that as well. Because obviously we you know there's only a few of us that cares in when we can't certainly be everywhere at once running games. So. Um, <laughs> the, the, the volunteer GMs are fantastic. You know, they're just a really good bunch of uh, guys and girls who are, um, you know, running games and doing a great job. Cool. So, I mean, my my exposure to organised play is it's uh, <laughs> recently been very different to to what you just described. So, I kind of had in my head that I would rock up to a Call of Cthulhu organised play and with a character I'd rolled up at home, and if I did well, I might get a certificate with a special stick of dynamite that I could take to my next <laughs> game. <laughs> And, uh, and level up and trade in some points for like sanity. Is that not how it works? <laughs> That's not how it works. No, I mean, I, I, balls. I, I, we, you know, we did have some feedback of people that were quite used to what I don't know whether it's a Pathfinder or D and D style of organized mm. play, where you might get a magic item that you can take with you to another, you know, That's to a completely right, different yeah, yeah. GM and group, that kind of thing. And that's all cool for that that style of game. But Cthulhu doesn't really work like that. It isn't about accumulation of artifacts or tomes in that way. Because uh, most of the time, if you get them, you, you don't want to use them. You want, you want to give them away or run away from them. It's, it's not really a reward. Um, so, um, so the, you know, you, I think you have to just balance things with the, with the nature of the game and the style of play that it is. And, and, and for Cthulhu, it's kind of, you know, what the the next kind of round of you know, this kind of serialized campaign that I've mentioned, the idea is that you know, it will provide some pre-gen characters, but in theory, it kind of in theory, you could, if somebody rocked up with their own character, with a little bit of tweaking just to shoehorn them into the narrative, perhaps, um, mm. they could probably play with it, you know, as long as, it's, you know, and the golden rule is, you know, it's keeper's choice, you know, they... They get to choose whether they give out pre gems, allow pre existing characters, or roll them up on the night. You know, as, as long as you know whoever's keeping the game is happy, then um, then that's all cool and dandy. So um, yeah, I mean, yeah, trying trying to make it as accessible as possible is is you know is, is the trick. Um, but I think you've got to kind of understand the nature of the game, and I, so I don't think we'll be giving out you know free sanity pass or something like that but then again who knows i mean you know that's kind of a cool idea maybe people would like it you know but i mean yeah <laughs> all these things are possible but uh, you know that's it, yeah. <laughs> free sanatorium pass <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> yeah well, well talking of such things well while we've got baz on the couch and we've got you here mike I know that Baz isn't massively fond of horror games per se, so I, I, maybe I can create a dialogue here. We can have a group circle or a therapy session or something. Get some sanity about, but 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 well, what, what I was going to suggest, Baz, is it, what what is it that you don't particularly engage with, or is there something that we could get Mike to suggest that might hook you in a bit more? Yeah, is that is that worth exploring? Yeah, well, definitely because it's it's really weird to to be. A massive hobbyist, just you know, so in love with everything to do with role playing gaming, uh, and I, and I want to love Call of Cthulhu gaming more than I do. Um, and it's not like I don't play it. And some of the best games I've ever had in my lifetime have been Call of Cthulhu games. I think I'm on record as saying the the single best game I've ever played is Call of Cthulhu games. So I kind of want to get that back again. Um, but unfortunately, I do find it difficult to engage with, and I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. It. And it comes down to two things, and I don't think these can be cured. And I'm not. Not too worried about it. There's plenty of other games to play, for goodness sake. The two parts is, first of all, horror as a genre is simply 
not in my top three things that I like. It's not it's not something I avoid particularly, and, and plenty of, of the games that I do like have a horror element to them, but it's not horror that that draws me to anything, whether that be cinema or books or comics or games. So there's that. And I and I think Call of Cthulhu without horror is utterly defanged and really what's the point? But I'm I'm prepared to be told it's, it doesn't have to be about <laughs> horror, but I don't think you're gonna do that. So, you know. <laughs> And then I think the second one, and it's a bit of a bigger one for me, and um, and it was interesting. I was listening to Mike on, on another podcast recently talking about this subject, so I'm afraid you might have to go over it again a little bit, mate. But investigations is is another thing that no matter what the game, it could be a superhero game, if it's an investigation, I find it pops me out of my character whenever I'm trying to engage with an investigation. So... It's a bit like when I was 12 playing D&D and you get presented with a puzzle, which might be some kind of checkerboard floor or uh, different coloured potions that have to go into an empty bottle or whatever. As a player, I quite like puzzles. As a player, I quite like investigations, but it does take me totally out of character. And when I play investigations and Call of Cthulhu games again, you know, there's a lot of investigations in them. I tend to find that the groups I play with all become the men and women around the table rather than the investigators in the 1920s with fedoras and atmosphere. So I kind of get kicked out of the game in two different directions. First of all, there's the horror stuff, which I just, it's not my thing. And then there's an investigation usually, and I find myself picking it apart like an Agatha Christie novel. So I hate to use the word immersion, but those two things (laughs) I find anti-immersive. And and that's sure. that's I guess that's fine, but that, but those are the two things. So there you go. Yeah, I think that you know I think knowing your gaming background, but as I completely understand and get that, I think you know that's that's completely fair enough. You know, we it's um, not everyone likes Airfix models. You know, as we used to say at Games mm. Workshop. Um, <laughs> but um, um, I think this, I mean, there's a really easy answer to. <laughs> the real, the real, really easy answer is to go and play the games you want to play. But the other play easy answer, the, the other <laughs> answer, to, to try and to try and try and draw you in to the uh, the beauty that is Call of Cthulhu, um, is to say, I I, I think um, what you probably would enjoy more, rather than what you might term classic straight Call of Cthulhu, is Pulp Cthulhu, because. Is very much more um, about a paced, action-orientated scenario rather than necessarily. You can have investigative pulp Cthulhu scenarios that are heavy on investigation. However, you can also have ones that are very light in investigation. So I think, I think for you, light, small, episodic pieces of investigation probably sit, sit better than a, a long four-hour, you know, jaunt around the library. Um, mm. <coughs> excuse me. Um, and um, I think that kind of play style where there is um, where the emphasis is on is on drama and action would probably sit sit more comfortably with you I would have thought so I, I would suggest Pulp Cthulhu is probably if you were going to do anything I would suggest trying it with, with those shoes um, mm. and I think in terms of setting <coughs> I think you just got to find the setting that's right for you, whether that's modern day, 1930s, you know, noir, or um, the Wild West, um, or 
um, Roman Roman Britain or you know uh, you know Invictus sort of style games or games set in the Dark Ages or or if you want the crazy and uh, you know way out weirdness then Dreamland uh, which is more fantasy esque in that sense um, and I think you just have to kind of you know what you know what do I you know what do I like and I mean and the, and the thing is just consider is that there are many different flavors for it um <coughs> that have been you know published as settings or coming out as settings or or you just do your own thing i mean you know there's a whole couple of books back in the day um called strange eons for call of cthulhu where every scenario was set in a completely different time period you know elizabethan england prehistoric mm. cave people um far future whatever it may be i mean the system is generic enough that it, it you can kind of play it where, whenever you like in that sense. Um, and I think, you know, if, 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 you know, the classic kind of 1920s, 1920s, 1930s sort of style play doesn't really rock your boat, then, then fine. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of published stuff for modern. Um, and um, as with, you know, particularly if you, I mean, the other thing about creating Call of Cthulhu scenarios is that, you know, they can be quite intricate because they are, you know, a lot of them are quite investigative based. So it takes a little bit, you know, more work sometimes or a little bit more kind of uh, uh, finessing of tree diagrams and clue threads. But again, if you're playing with pulp, then it's, you know, it's, it can be a lot easier. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to do a, you know, you, if you want to run the kind of a, uh, dick barton special agent type thing or doc savage full-on you know uh pulpy kind of thing you can and and the, and the thing with the pulp is that it um it presents you with a range of um basically bolt-on slotting rules for standard call of cthulhu and they're all optional so you, you basically and, and it's you know what i tried to make it great paint in the pulp book is to say here's a toolkit you know you you can use all of these things if you wish or you can just pick out the one that's going to work for you and fine tune it for your group. Because, you know, when you say pulp, it means all things to all people. And no, you know, and again, any group of six people will never agree on what is pulp, you know. Um, so it's a very loose term. And so I try to um, emulate that in the actual Pulp Cotillion book by saying, like, here are, here are different levels of pulp you can play with suggestions on which rules fit those levels better, whether it's low pulp or high pulp um and uh the rule you know and the and the kind of the kind of bits of rules are there to do so if you want to kind of have a guy you know dual wielding two pistols or two shotguns for that kind of high action more combative experience then you can with pulp if that's not your thing then you don't use that rule and you keep it a little bit more realistic in that sense um I mean, that, that, that's kind of where I kind of, you know, that's the book I throw at you, Baz, in that respect. Um, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you've got, to, you've got to tune it to what your expectations of what your desire is in that way. And it may be, you know, um, you know, as you've said, you know, you've enjoyed playing Call of Cthulhu at different times, probably dependent on the scenario and when and where it happened. Um, Hmm. And so it may be that you know ultimately at the end of the day you're you're a Call of Cthulhu player rather than a runner. It may be the other way around. I don't know, but I mean, I don't know. That's to be used I think to it, that's that's a really interesting point. I've I've played Call of Cthulhu far more than I've ever keepered it, if that's the term. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Um, I remember getting 
Call of Cthulhu, the, uh, I think I started with the third edition, the one that GW imported back in yeah, the early 80s. Yeah, third edition. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, loads of us did, didn't we, in this country, I suppose. And um, and I tried to run it, um, uh, but my 12-year-old self ran it like a dungeon. Uh, not surprisingly, because it's all I knew. And it's all most of us knew, actually. We had Redbox D&D, um, and then, you know, Call of Cthulhu, which we I think we all had a go at. And and, uh, and I, I, just, I think I ran it wrong from the very first day. But the weird thing is, <laughs> I spent the intervening 20 or 30 years trying to uh, sign up for games to, to figure out where all the good is at. Because I, people I hugely respect tell me all the time about how brilliant Call of Cthulhu is. So I'm not going to ignore that. So, But I think what I've done wrong, necessarily, is I should probably just run it again. But with you know, with some of the sort of skills and the other genre stuff that I've picked up over time, I, I really do fancy running a pulp Cthulhu game. And, and the stuff you've said about it makes it sound even more appealing. Um, it it will be a horror game, but I won't have to suffer the investigation if I'm the keeper, will I? So there's that. Well, that, that's, <laughs> that's the beauty. Yeah, that that is the beauty of running running the games is that you don't need to worry about the mystery in that way. I mean, what you'll find at the back of the pulp Cthulhu book is four scenarios, and all of them are kind of different shades of pulp you know that one of them is quite an, you know the, a good half of it is investigation it's going around talking to people you know very detective based um mm. another one is all set at a big social function where it's all about interaction between characters uh, before some bad guys turn up and um and then another one is um is set during a hurricane in in the florida keys very action orientated it's very much about chases some combat, you know, um, trying to stop the, you know, trying to stop the clock on the bomb before the last second, that kind of, that kind of um, setup. And, um, and the other one is, you know, you're on a, you're on a cruise liner um, and there's a bit of investigation there, but actually it's a lot of reactions, a lot of reacting to things that are going off and, you know, challenging you. Um, mm. And, you know, and the reason, you know, again, to try was to try and say you can play this in a different number of flavors. So, you know, there's no reason you could play Pulp Cthulhu with very, with the horror dialed down very very low, so it's actually more more gang you know to you know as a term you know more kind of noir or gangsterish if you wanted to do that kind of period feel. Um, mm. But equally, you know, um, if you wanted to do a kind of John Carter of Mars type thing, where it's the mythos rather than some aliens, um, you could do that as well. You know, it's it's again you know. Both Paul Frick and I, in, in the in the main, you know, Cthulhu rule book, try to go to fair length to try and say that you know while there is a kind of standardised version of the mythos, which is you know we kind of need to have one to present it in the book, so everyone kind of understands what we're talking about. Um, there are there is no rule to say it must be like this. You know, we we go to great lengths to say to change up the monsters, to never call them by the name, to keep them mysterious, and to mm. you know, to do unexpected things. Uh, and to keep it fresh, you know, not only for you, but also for the players. And so, you know, one of the things I kind of rail against about, you know, the kind of Cthulhu community is 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 the kind of thought that it's all canon. There is no canon. Lovecraft never had a canon. He, if Whatever he did in his stories, he changed them in the next story if it worked for the story. You know, you get people in, in, in mythos beings that are kind of transformed through different stories with no meaning or reason, reason or rhyme to them because it just worked for the story that he was writing. Um, so, you know, there's no there's no need to have a canon in that sense to be beholden to the, the kind of the, the kind of the baseline that's presented in the game. 
you want to change mm. it up and do different things with it, then then that's your prerogative, just like you would do with any other game system and, and sure. you know, Monster Manual or whatever it might be, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's good to know. I mean, I, I genuinely, I think I, I I'm going to grab a copy of Pulp because I was it was on my list anyway, and I think what I'll do is I'll probably try running some of those scenarios. Maybe we can put some stuff up online and Patreons can come and play some games and we'll just give it a go. And if everyone's nice and open-minded there. Guys, would you play in a game of Call of Cthulhu that I was running? And it I would love to. Green. Uh, no, that's, that's my sole domain. I get to run Delta Green around here. Yeah, I know. That, that's the, like, in the compact, isn't it? I'm not allowed to touch that. So. And you keep your, keep your filthy hands off my Marvel role-playing games. Oh, well, that wasn't a problem, was it? <laughs> That sounds a great idea, but we should do that. Yeah. One of the things that sprung to my mind, actually, as well, then, was playing Buffy using Cthulhu. It just seemed like a great fit. If you've got Paul Cthulhu, something <laughs> yeah. like, you know, it doesn't have to be Buffy necessarily, but that kind of American TV show where you've got a gang of people working together and there's some weird stuff happening in the background, that kind of the, the setup seems to fit ideally into a sort of Paul Cthulhu sort of framework, if you know what I mean. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, what you've got in Paul Cthulhu is um, what I just call Pulp Talents. Um, which are, you know, basically you might you know, call them edges in another game or um, uh, bonuses or whatever, enhancements, that kind of thing. And and there's a set in, in the book, uh, you know, kind of combat ones, mind ones, investigative ones, and you kind of pick and choose them as you, you know, develop the character. But uh, but there's nothing stopping you from creating quite tailored ones that, that would fit that kind of core concept. So if you wanted to do a kind of version of Buffy or Scooby-Doo or whatever it may be, um, you could define, you know, define what the talent might be for each of those characters, and work with the player to kind of make something that works for them and you um, very easily, you know. Um, and and the ones in the book, you can easily, you know, just adapt or tailor a little bit, tweak them as you need to. So yeah, that that would be a, a really easy setup to do. I would have thought. So um, did you actually get to play it, Mike? Is it something that you're interested in doing as you don't have the time or are you really a keeper at heart because i don't think i've ever it's very rarely i see you sit down to play a game i've seen you run quite a few yeah yeah it's kind of a double-edged sword isn't it yeah i mean i historically i've always tended to particularly at conventions is, is run more than i've i've played um because you know i have a um i don't know lucky to have people that want to kind of play in my games or ask me that you know will you be running something and you kind of feel like oh well, I wasn't gonna but now you're asking me I suppose I better do something you know <laughs> um but what has been really nice um since kind of you know doing this job um is because I kind of need to play test a lot of scenarios um I there's no way in the world I can run them all I just haven't got the time to prep them or to you know, really, um, I could, and also I want to see how they actually play um, on the other side. I want to feel how the player might feel and do, you know, does does this, is this scenario written in a way that leads me down a kind of a bottleneck, you know, rather than, uh, rather than you know, free reign or whatever it may be. Um, so I try to play um, a lot more than I used to. So um, I've played a lot, I've, I've now, you know, I've probably played more Cthulhu in the since doing this job than I ever did before, almost in a way, <laughs> in terms of you know not running. Um, but uh, you know the, other, the the nice thing, you know, I I mean I don't think you either of you managed to get to Concrete Cow for a little while. Um, no, so I try to. That's one of my conventions. I try to go to and maybe not run at because there's often you know some new games there and 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 some um, you know uh, 
playtest game. So it's 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 a great kind of opportunity for me to just go and play something different, see what's happening, what new stuff is out, and um, and get a feel for that as well. Um, so I try and you know try and do that, and um, yeah, try it as much as I can. But my old gaming group that's been going for like donkey's years at home. Um, <laughs> I think I think once in a blue moon, one of them might might elect to run something, but it's very very rare, very rare, and I end up having mm-hmm. to run all the time there. So you know, being able to play some time is is really good. <laughs> playing online has obviously helped. Being able to play online has yeah, sure. been a real boon. Yeah. And do you think that's informed anything about um, how? The lines developed, if you know what I mean, from from sitting on the other side of it and actually playing things through. Because it's, I think we can all agree that, like, if you read a set of rules, for example, you, you get an idea about how they're going to play. But until you actually play them, you don't know. And typically, if you're doing a lot of writing and a lot of running games, you've got an idea in your head about how it might play out. But until you actually sit on the other side of the screen and you know you see what you're presented with and what options you think you've got as a player, it, it can be different. So uh, again, it's not it's not specific to chaosium, but the way some Cthulhu scenarios have been presented at conventions, for example, there can be quite a lot of, um, when it comes to the investigative stuff that Buzz is talking about, you might go, oh, you, you know, you found a white glove and everybody looks at each other knowingly. But you're like, as a player, because I'm more of the pulp bent, I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? Until I, until I see something happen, I don't yeah. know. You know, you, you find a statue of Cthulhu. Okay, well, we all know it's Cthulhu, but we're pretending we don't know. And then, so what, what what's happening? You know, what... What what do I get out of it as a player? So have you seen any of that? You know, from playing a little bit, where yeah. you're perhaps thinking that you know a writer or keeper is probably getting more out of this than the players might have done if without a few tweaks or something. Yeah, yeah, I see. I do see that occasionally. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, ultimately, I'm I'm like any, I'm like you guys and anyone else is that you know, if I'm playing a character in a game, somebody else is running. Am I bored or not? You know, <laughs> 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 it's my ultimate level of, of level of gauge here. But you know, uh, bringing that, you know back down it's kind of like you know what um is the scenario written to to assume that the players will know what know what it means when you find a statue of cthulhu even though your character wouldn't that kind of thing mm. just as you've said because i think you know it, it i think you know it should be your character should have a reason to understand the implications of it because that's far more enjoyable far more impactful rather than just trading off kind of meta knowledge in that sense um yeah so yeah, I think I think it's yeah, it's certainly a, a useful tool in that way. Um, and you know, just I mean, <laughs> playtesting scenarios is great because I mean, you know, it gives you free range to be awkward and do do the unexpected thing. <laughs> You're that guy, aren't you? It, well, <laughs> it is because I mean, despite you know, despite it being fun for us because we, you know we kind of get that get what that means. Um, once it goes, once it leaves, it goes out in published forms to groups you will never meet and never speak to. You don't know how it's going to get played or run. And so, testing testing the kind of the boundaries of the scenario, how elastic is it, is actually a really useful thing. So, you know, going up to the NPC that's about to give a monologue and tell you all that's going on and shooting him in the face instead, what happens then? Does the scenario collapse and fall? Does it, you know, mm-hmm. is, does it take it into account? You know, and so testing it out in a way, you know, in, in, not without being, you know, without doing stupid things like that necessarily, but, you know, just really, you know, forcing issues sometimes and, you know, 
not doing the kind of like everyone 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 you know holds back and doesn't get into a fight or doesn't want to you know go down the cellar because they might lose some sanity but you know head, rushing down their head first to see what happens is um you know testing the scenario in that sense because you know um so i think that's 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 really useful and it does it does help you kind of get a shape of the scenario because then when you come to actually read it and edit it you you obviously think back about your experience about it as a player and think well actually well at, at that point in the scenario, it's now saying that, that we should have understood this. And clearly, when we played it, we didn't. So clearly, there's an issue there that needs to be addressed, you know, earlier on in the scenario, perhaps. So, you know, it does, does all help to, to sort of tweak things like that. And, um, and in terms of that kind of learning how to play, as you say, I think that's one of the things over the iterations of the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, um, there have been some examples of play in the rules, but not many. And often, often the rules have been disjointed and, and in different places. And then, you know, that's a whole other kick and caboodle. So with seventh edition, one of the, one of the intrinsic things we wanted to do was to, to actually have probably far more than we needed, but have a, a lot of good examples of how the rules are implemented in play. And so people got an idea of, how do you, you know how do you actually use these mechanics in play uh, and so we could illustrate them so you know there are there are extended examples of uh, chases combats skill roles skill difficulty levels that kind of stuff um casting magic that kind of thing um to you know to really to be there for the player that maybe hasn't role played before doesn't really get what Cthulhu is doesn't or doesn't isn't isn't quite understanding the rules um and so, you know, that's, you know, it didn't help the book size, but hopefully on the converse, it, it, it helps um, to, um, you know, a little, prepare people a little bit more for the, the experience of running or playing in the game, uh, which may not necessarily have been there before. Yeah, good stuff. I, I'm actually going to run something tomorrow, fingers crossed, for some new guys. Cool. Um, or one or one or two that have played once or twice before. I think I think one guy pretty much knows what's going on, but it's from the um the Arkham card game we've played a bit of. Oh yeah. Some kind of yeah. Got into. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I think is really good. Yeah, no, I, I played it the first time the other day actually and um thoroughly enjoyed it. It was it's uh, one of the better kind of um in a sense hybrids where you you know, you're playing a card game with you know, clear clear mechanics and structure, but the uh the actual narrative and plot and the and the flow of information is, is clearly you know the drawing on the RPGs as inspiration and it's a quite a nice it's quite a nice melding of the two and so yeah the very enjoyable game of it you know it's a, it's a, and, and you know it's nice that you can play it solo as well um it's a, you know yeah cool yeah I got the, one of the funny bits at the end of one of them was um the end of the first scenario I've got the option whether to burn the house down or not and uh, the one of the players refused. It's like, no, it's my house. It's, like, it's full of it's like full of dead bodies and there's things coming out of the wall. It's like, yeah, but it's my house. I paid for it. I'm not burning it down. Brilliant. And, which is which? How do you tell if someone's a veteran cathedral player or not? Like, <laughs> he didn't burn the house down, so he can't have played before. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, I'll find out how that went. And uh, yeah, in terms of using the settings you mentioned before at um, Seven Hills quite recently, I ran a Cthulhu Victor style one, uh, which went down really well, for, as far as I can tell anyway. But um, yeah, one of the, the weird things I found about, or not weird, but things I wasn't expecting is um, at one point there's kind of a, 
a genetic uh, ritual where they throw someone into a bonfire because that was kind of how they made the sacrifices. And I thought it would be quite a horrifying scene. And the players were just all kind of like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Barbarians. <laughs> yeah. No, That's I what mean, they get up to. <laughs> horror is such a, such a subjective thing that, um, you know, you, you can only kind of ever really go off what you find. If, you, if you're running or writing a scenario, you can only kind of really go off what you find horrific almost and hope that it kind of translates. Um, but um, you know, if you play, you know, if you play with an established group and you you know your players, you know that that that's obviously quite useful because obviously you can then because you know them you can start to play off fears that you know they have perhaps or, or things that might uh, you know uh, play to that play to that more in, in the in the kind of nature of the scenarios. But uh, yeah, it's a funny thing, horror. It's like you know, hum- comedy and horror are good bedfellows. You know, but you know, you can, you can be laughing one minute and then go, oh no, wow, well, the next. Um, and some days it is, and some sessions are just all comedy. And sometimes, you know, you just the the right ingredients are all there at the right time, where it actually is quite a creepy, you know, suspenseful, may, you know, maybe slightly horrifying, you know, session. Um, but on the whole, it tends to be about fifty-fifty. The ones I play, you know, it tends to be, you know, uh, depending on you know who the players are. And where we're doing it, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's yeah, I think common. The most disturbing thing the guys I play with found was the guy giving him a lift in his boat, and I was like, he was the most horrifying element. It was just some old guy giving him a lift up river, but you can never tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure, sure. We got the um, I got the Wild West, the Old West setting for Cthulhu coming out uh, later this year. It's just um, going into production at the moment. We've got the art coming and. Uh, and that's really cool because what again what I've tried to do with that is um, it's written by Kevin Ross um, who's an old hand at writing these kind of things and um, uh, but it was written before Pulp Cthulhu came out and then then kind of came into uh, came into Kersium for kind of development and so um, you know it's written for kind of Call of Cthulhu but I've added in you know uh, a section of um, you know Pulp material for character creation that kind of thing so again because you know, Wild West can easily go either way, whether it's straight horror or pulp. It's, a, it's an easy genre to do either with. So the book kind of reflects that as well. So um, I'm hoping, you know, hoping it kind of um, meets that need, you know, that, um, you know, playing uh, Wild West games with a with a touch of horror, um, you know, seems a good fit, you know. <laughs> so Yeah, it easily lends itself, doesn't it? Because you've got the whole thing where you don't have phones, and stuff like that. So a lot of the things were like, you know, I'll just go and get the police or I'll ring someone and ask them or anything like that. Yeah, it takes all that out of it. It's like... Oh, it does. It no. Does. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can ride 30 miles and send a telegram if you want. <laughs> like, that's, that's your best option. Yeah. <laughs> Smoke yeah. signals. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Good stuff. Anything more from you, Buzz? No, I don't think so. No, thanks ever so much for coming on, mate. That was a really good conversation, mate. Really appreciate it. No worries. I've enjoyed it. It's always, always, uh, always a pleasure to chat to you boys, as you well know. So uh, happy, <laughs> happy to do it any time. Yeah, let's play hey, some stuff. More games and, soon. And any other tidbits yeah. you've got about what's coming from uh, Chaosium in the future, or anything like that? Anything? Well, the, well, the, yeah. The, well, the next things are the the Western book I just talked about, which is called Down Darker Trails. Uh, the other book that's going to be coming out around about the same time is uh, Tales of Sandy Peterson which is um, a collection of scenarios that were kind of, you know, uh, designed and uh, originally run by Sandy uh, at, at 
certain conventions where he's you know he's personally run them um that i've kind of worked with sandy on kind of writing writing them up into actually uh you know um a form somebody else could use uh and um so that's the collection of those so they're all modern day uh they're all they're all uh set in a variety of locations and different themes from kind of uh gang culture to an oil rig on the north sea to the pharmaceutical industry and and you know different places like that um so they're, they're all pretty cool um and then um what else have we got we've got also the other one um we've got two books about to come out in print are the two-headed serpent which is the the big full-on pop Cthulhu campaign kind of world spanning uh kind of you know a little bit akin to masks in terms of its scope uh but you know specifically written for cthulhu uh pop cthulhu so very kind of uh there is a bit of investigation but it's mainly you know you're in the jungle and uh there's a there's a, a plane about to hit you what you do you know that kind of uh, situation <laughs> um and uh, the other book is the uh the grand grim wild cthulhu mythos magic which is your kind of um core book of spells so um Five, you know, over 500 different kind of Call of Cthulhu spells, which is which are nothing like the ones you find in uh, <laughs> nothing like Magic Missile and uh, those kind of fantasy type spells. They're far more far more dangerous and hideous most of the time. But uh, you know, they're the books we've got, um, you know, kind of out, uh, you know, over this uh, the next few months now. Uh, but plenty more on the way after that. Excellent stuff. Good to see you so vibrant. We'll um we'll get we'll get Baz running some uh, pub Cthulhu of some sort for our patrons, and we'll we'll get you back on maybe and uh, tell you all how it went. That would be great. Mm-hmm. That would be looking forward to that already, Baz. Awesome, cool, <laughs> excellent. Cheers, thanks a lot, Mike, and we'll see you later, dear readers. Cheers, guys. You can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty@hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions, and revelations are always welcome. Roll diplomacy.